A reading from the book of Romans, beginning in the 12th chapter. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. On one another by above yourself. Never be lacking zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of slow position, do not be conceited, do not repay anyone evil for evil, be careful to do what is right in the eye of everyone. If it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge of my dear, fr my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, and mine is to avenge. I will repay, said the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In this doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So in Spike Jones' uh, futuristic love movie, Her is the title, Joaquin Phoenix plays Theodore. Uh, Theodore is this sort of sad, lonely man. He's been separated from his wife. He, he actually writes letters for other people for a living. So in this sort of near future, uh, we no longer need to communicate with one another. He can just sort of do it for us. And so he's, he's kind of writing these letters, and some of them are love letters, and he, he's sort of surrounded by relationship but isn't really in one himself, and so it sort of compounds his loneliness a little bit. Um, and in this future, uh, there are artificial and artificially intelligent operating systems. And Theodore ends up falling in love with his phone's operating system uh, named Samantha. And he and Samantha talk all the time. If you haven't seen the movie, uh, it's actually quite touching. The, the, creep, the creepiness is, is definitely there, <laughs> as it sort of should be. But, but it's actually sort of, sort of warm, and it's a fascinating look at what it means to be human, and I think sort of reveals to us the complexity of the word love and what we mean when we say love. Because in this case, Theodore is in love with his phone, but not in a way that like most of us are like, yeah, I love my new phone or whatever. It's, it's different, right? He's, he's like actually being sort of romantically entangled. There's this great scene where Theodore is meeting up with his estranged wife to finally sign their divorce papers, and inevitably she asks him if he's seeing anyone. And he says yes, and he starts describing Samantha and just, like, their relationship. And she sort of is like, oh, I'm so happy for you. You know, how did you guys meet? And he finally reveals she's the operating system on my phone. And, of course, she's, like, his, his soon-to-be ex-wife is totally thrown by this, and, of course, right then the server comes up, and so she sort of starts lashing out at him about being in love with his laptop. 
But she ends their conversation by saying, you always wanted to have a wife without the challenges of actually dealing with anything real. I'm glad you finally found someone perfect. To me, this is sort of like the core of what Spike Jones is trying to sort through in that movie. Is like, how, how real can love be if it's not a real person mess and everything? Love is one of those complex features of human life, and we can sort of intuit the shades of meaning when we say we love things or people, right? So the running joke in Arrested Development, I'm having a love affair with this ice cream sandwich, so why don't you marry an ice cream sandwich? Like, we get that that's love at a, at a different register. There's sexual love and romantic love. There's, there's parental love and familial love. And as we can see from our reading in Romans this evening, there is a strong possibility of something else masquerading in us as love. Hence Paul's injunction that we have genuine love, that love should be sincere rather than one of its many counterfeits. That very first statement should sort of like get us up a little bit and make us wonder Am I truly loving? Love is at the heart of the Christian vocation. To be a Christian is to be one who has been met with the perfect love of Christ on display in his life, death, and resurrection. It is to have been made alive and brought into the divine life, which is love itself. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're being brought into the life of God, and God himself is love. And as we hear every week in Christ's summary of the law, to live rightly is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And here Paul is offering the church in Rome almost a litany of what genuine love, both within the Christian community and from the Christian community to the outward community, should look like. And Adeline, if you're in here, you, you read that perfectly because it really is just like tr translators have, have trouble understanding what Paul's doing because he's just layering these things on one after another, one after another. And he's trying to just get a smattering and it all sort of works under the heading of that first one. And in the original text, it's just two words, sincere love. Let love be sincere and then this is what it looks like. And the love that Paul describes here, both within the Christian community for one another and outwardly to the world, both resemble the words of Christ when he says, this is love that a man would lay down his life for his friends. It's coming back to what we saw in our gospel reading last week, that all those who would follow Christ and enter into love should take up their cross and follow him. Now, there's a lot happening here, and we don't have a ton of time, so we're going to quickly go through a couple of things. First of all, I want to just say, those of us that are baptized, that are part of Christ's church, our posture toward those outside the community of faith should never, ever be one of antagonism. Ever. We are to be people of peace. Paul says to be at peace so far as it depends on you. Now, there's obviously room for a caveat there, right? The church should never try to be something she is not and teach things that are contrary to what the teachings of Christ are. And yet we should not go around antagonizing outsiders with what the church holds to be true, right? We should be at peace with all people. There's a remarkable lack of vengeance in the community of Christ. 
members of Christ's church are to act with compassion, not just toward outsiders, but even to those who would say that they are our enemies. We are to offer food and water to those who wish that we didn't exist. And if we were to have any hope of achieving this posture, we absolutely must be gospel people. We must be people who can own up to our own enmity with God so that we can truly see the depth of Christ's love. Christ didn't simply offer bread and water to his enemies. He has instead offered his own flesh as the bread of life to the people that were crucifying him. He's offered up his own blood as the wine of the new covenant. When we imagine ourselves primarily as enemies who have been loved into friendship by Christ at great cost to himself, we can begin to love others with that very love. Because we will know truly what it means to be on the outside and have been brought in through no doing of our own, but only through the love of Christ. This grounding of our identity in Christ is the key to loving those outside the church, and it's also the key to loving one another within the community of the baptized. Loving one another, I think, is, is quite a bit more difficult than we allow, uh, often allow ourselves to imagine because of those counterfeit loves, right? Again, the very beginning here, Paul is saying, let your love be genuine. And in my uh, short-lived experience, I've, I've experienced two sort of main types of disingenuous love in Christian circles. One of them is a bit more obvious than the other one. But I think they're both pretty dangerous and fairly insidious. The first is the sort of angry, pharisaical love which lays heavy burdens on people, demanding all sorts of ethical purity down to the minutia of everything. And, and that, that love of, of the Pharisee mindset then is searching constantly like the eye of Sauron for any sort of slip-up, ready to pounce whenever it can. This kind of love, I think, is ultimately rooted in fear. We think that if we can just sort of codify morality, then we can somehow make ourselves okay and get to a place of, of kind of stasis and just sort of just be, right? And this fear actually results in us covering up our own sin because we see what happens when it gets revealed and then we get disproportionately angry at others for their sin because we're so busy hiding our own. It's, it's a denial of the gospel in the same way that the servant in Christ's parable whose billion-dollar debt was forgiven who then went out and refused to clear a debt of a few hundred dollars. That, that's the same denial. To try to hide away the debt of your own that has been forgiven and then overreact with anger to other people, laying on all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the message of Christ is not actually love. Now, I don't think it's difficult to confuse this sort of judgmental meddling with love. But there are those who have been trapped in such communities and the level of spiritual manipulation is high and is saddening. I'm, I'm sort of relearning these things as I talk with my kids about anger. So we will read books and there's like a bully character or whatever and they wanna know like, why are they mad? Why are they being mean? And almost always it's because those people have been hurt as well, right? So the, the angry fundamentalist, I think, is a person who's really living in fear and not in freedom. And so as easy it would be to point the finger outward and say, well, you're not loving correctly 
That's actually not the response Paul's looking for either, right? The response is to actually love those people into a place of freedom. Now, here's where our current context gets a little bit tricky to navigate, because I think even just a few years ago, I may have suggested that it's often Christians on the sort of fringe right who struggle with this sort of Phariseeism, this fanatic ruthlessness in the name of ethical purity. But as religious life continues to fracture along cultural lines, the left is revealing itself as every bit as fanatic and ruthless regarding ethical purity. It's just that the things that they're being ethical about are totally different. But it's still, I mean, you've got to recycle, man. In my office, if you put glass in the wrong bin, oh, man, the looks. I mean, how hard is it to put the glass in the right bin? Come on. Whatever the political persuasion, in the Pharisee camp, there is a facade of hatred for evil but there doesn't seem to be a clinging to what is good. Paul, Paul is balancing himself out here with these statements. And the, the sort of angry fundamentalist thing isn't actually clinging to what is good. They're just sort of pretending at hatred. And there's definitely not a devotion to honoring one another above ourselves. This is not genuine love. The other sort of disingenuine love or insincere love is a bit trickier, at least in our cultural moment. As I said last week, we live in a world that equates freedom with the ability to self-identify. You get to build your own reality, your own identity. And in, in the setting of our current culture, to love is to not simply allow, but to encourage the other to do and be whatever they want to do and be. And on the face of it, this seems truly loving. And most of us under the age of 40, like this, this is pretty much the world that we have known from day one. You can be whoever you want to be, do whatever you want to do. But when looked at a little more closely, I think this sort of false love has actually grayed over the dramatic complexity of the world. In this view of the world, there is no longer an evil to abhor or a good to cling to other than being true to ourself. This false love leads us to honor ourselves above others. You see this sort of thing in the, in the stories that our culture tells a lot, especially in, in memoir, right? Where the, the sad and poor decision-making of the characters gets recast as just them learning their truth or being true to themselves. But the relational devastation that's in their wake just sort of goes unheeded. This isn't true, genuine love. Both of these forms of insincere love are everywhere in our culture, and I think together sort of form the cultural mold that we looked at last week that Paul is telling us that we have to be broken out of. All of which is to say the Church of Christ cannot simply adopt the world's modes of love and assume that we are letting love be genuine and sincere. On the contrary, St. John tells us clearly that God himself is love, which means that if we were to understand what Paul is getting at when he tells us to love with sincerity, we have to come to know God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. We have to. We have to gather around his word and at his table in the community of his people and understand what he means when he says love. In our gospel reading from this evening, isn't super reassuring in terms of the niceness quality of what Christian love looks like, right? Jesus makes it very clear that Christian love can sometimes be confrontational. 
It is, however, grace-filled and always has the goal of restoration. In the verses just preceding our gospel lesson, Jesus tells a succinct version of the parable of the lost sheep. He says, if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and loses one, he leaves the 99 and he goes out to find the one lost sheep. And then what? Does he berate the sheep? Does he guilt the sheep by letting him know that it was really a big pain to come out here and boy, I hope the rest of the 99 are doing okay since I had to come all the way out here for you? No. The shepherd finds the sheep and rejoices. He says he's happier about the one sheep than he is about the 99 that stayed at the farm. Right? The goal is always restoration. There's a lot more to be said about Matthew 18, which is where, uh, over time, the church has developed a, a sort of doctrine about what's called church discipline, which I realize has sort of a, a scary-sounding name, but, it's, but it's, it's discipling, right? That's really what it is. And there's so much more to be said about this passage that we don't have time for, but I do want to just point out a few things as we close that should mark us as a community. The first one is that if you would consider all souls your church, but you have set up your life in such a way that you don't know the sins of anyone around here, and no one here knows any of the sins that you're struggling with, then perhaps we haven't ordered our lives correctly. At the very least, Jesus here assumes that if you are his disciple, his follower, then you are living in close connection with the church, in a close enough connection to get caught, right? As horrifying as that might sound. There has to be a sense of, of cohesion, of closeness. There's a togetherness. And what we have to realize, even from his language here, is that we're not just friends who happen to attend a Sunday service together. We are brothers and sisters. Right? Jesus is not calling upon the church to go out to everyone that we find who's not living correctly and tell them what they're doing wrong. He's talking about within the church, and within the church, it's a familial thing. It's brothers and sisters. So I'd say some of us may need to press into deeper relationships. We may need to sort of step forward in faith and, and get closer with other people that we're sitting next to this evening. But to do so, we have to be driven by love and not fear. Because to be in close relationship takes time and energy, and it drastically increases the potential for miscommunication and hurt feelings. It just does. But to be in Christ is to be in close relationship with others who are in Christ. To pretend otherwise would be foolish and detrimental. And the second thing sort of flows out of that, which is if you're in close relationships, guess what? People are going to screw up because we're screw-ups. <laughs> That's sort of what we do. And I think part of having a healthy Christian anthropology, right, a Christian understanding of what it means to be human, is that we shouldn't be surprised when people screw up, even in really big ways. There's a part of my job where I, I have people come to me, and, and whether it's in like the sacrament of confession or just sort of one-on-one -on -one wanting sort of pastoral advice, and I totally get it because I'm the exact same way, but the amount of like fidgeting and sweating it out as if I haven't heard this before or something infinitely worse than whatever you're about to tell me, I'm just not surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when people screw up, okay? 
Don't be surprised when people screw up. However, we also have to see schadenfreude as anti-Christ. There is no room in the church for taking pleasure in other people's downfalls. Right? Nobody? Nobody here struggles with that. Anytime a Christian fails to live according to his or her baptism, the goal is always, always, always restoration. It is always about grace and love actually winning by that person coming back into what they say they believe, who they say they are in Christ, who their baptism declares them to be. So we need to be in close relationship, and when we're in close relationship, we have to kind of be prepared. It's messy. It's not easy. And I think that's why Christ is so clear that whenever you are aware of a pattern of sin, okay, and this is where we, we don't have a ton of time to unpack everything, but the idea here in Matthew 18 is it's not just like, oh, there was one time that I saw this person doing this, so now I'm going to go talk to him. No, it's like when you become aware of a pattern of sin in your brother's and sister's life, you don't go talk to someone else about it. You don't hold a prayer meeting and in vague but obvious terms spill the beans to everyone else. You go and you talk to that person. You have a face-to-face conversation with that person. And this is not scripture, but I have a feeling if Paul were writing in the 21st century, he might agree with me on this. Email is the devil's playground. If you're having relational problems with somebody, get off email and go have a cup of coffee. Don't talk to other people about it. Go to that person and talk with them. I've been part of too many communities that get torn apart by gossip and slander. We are not the church of George Costanza, right? George Costanza, I'm much more comfortable criticizing people behind their back. That's not what this is. Growing up into Christ requires that we leave such childishness behind. From the very beginning, those of you that were with us in the early weeks of all souls existing, we said that we want to be a place where we talk to people and we pray for people, but we don't go around just talking about each other. There's a great scene in the movie Doubt where uh, the, the priest is giving an illustration about gossip, and he sort of channels this Irish priest voice, which I won't try to do. But he says this woman comes to the priest and says that she's been guilty of gossip. What should she do? So the priest tells her to go up to the roof of her building and take a feather pillow and a knife and cut open the feather pillow and just shake out all of the feathers off the roof. So she goes and does that. She comes back the next week to confession and she says, Father, I, I did what you told me to do. Now, I mean, like, what's the deal? And he said, now go and pick up all of the feathers that is gossip, right? Can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. That's why Jesus is very, very clear. You go to the person because it's about love, not about catching someone in sin. Friends, it is exactly this kind of love, a love that is willing to go after another person who is straying and bring them back to the fold without going forth in superiority and judgment 
It is this kind of love that does not gloat at the downfall of others, but seeks the true flourishing of all. It is this kind of love by which the world should identify us as followers of Jesus. Right? The world can get judgment eight days a week. If you haven't figured that out, you should read John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed. The world can also do sort of turning away and letting people self-destruct. The church doesn't have either of those options for our brothers and sisters. And to truly be what Christ has called us to be, we have to start loving in this way. As Paul says, we are to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. As St. Peter reminds us, we are to be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. So just one quick word of caution. If you're already sort of clocking in on somebody that you feel like you need to go talk to about their sin, do not do it until you have spent a lot of time in prayer. We have to be people of prayer, sitting in silence before God so that we can know what true love is and what it looks like before we just go out on our own. That is always the first step. Be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. And we'll end with this, also from St. Peter. Above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.